Hi, welcome to the Train Rush, the tepid chicken soup in the buffet car of your train gaming life, presented by your hosts, Craig Taylor and Dave Moss. Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty accurate description of us, really, isn't it, at the moment? Lukewarm, perhaps. Well, yeah. It's the thing nobody wants, really, as such. Oh, that's probably doing us a disservice. Today's episode is a bit of a weird one, but before we get into that, let's talk about what's been going on with us for the last week or so. So I had a copy of Panic arrived. It's by Nothing Now Games, and I think Mr B Games as well. There's a couple of publishers of that. It was a Kickstarter, has no trains, so we, we won't dwell on it for too much, but it is a, a stocks and shares manipulation one. There's a couple of interesting little variants in the box. Jeff and Carla Horger, who did Thunder Alley and some other stuff that's been published by GMT, part of the design crew. It's the kind of thing that floated my boat a little bit. I think you've actually managed to play it. I haven't yet. That's the shock turnaround this episode. I've managed to play it before Dave. Interesting little game. It puts me in mind of something in between Tulip Bubble and For Sale. It's good fun. I Like I say, played in rounds, three rounds, take about 10 minutes around. A little bit chaotic. Yeah, okay, there's ran- random what cards you get dealt. A little bit of chaos in there. But you still feel like you're playing a game or you're in control of it. Quite, quite enjoyable. Looking forward to playing it some more to, to fill my thoughts out on it. Yeah, and, and mitigation and management of it. And as you say, in a short playing time, playing up to eight players. All kind of good stuff. I'm very keen to get to the table soon. But uh, it isn't a train game, as we said. So let's maybe talk about a new arrival that is a train game. Well, beyond it just being a train game, Dave, it's our first official review copy as The Train Rush. I've had the fortune of receiving one or two review copies for my blogging previously. I have actually covered this title before in blogging, albeit the prototype. It's the first I've seen of the production copy of Tokyo Metro by Jordan Draper Games. Very interesting. We've played the prototype, you know, we played it a couple of times before. You brought the production version with you today and, and you know, I've had a look at it. It looks fantastic. I am a, a Kickstarter backer, very much looking forward to getting my copy when they, they kind of get out into the wider world. But we're, we're hopefully going to line up some plays of it very soon and try and get that onto a future episode. Well, if I can just steal two minutes of the sure. cast, Dave, to talk to some of the positive bits that I'm happy to see. The screen printing on the trains. No, the the, the rap- rustling in the background is Craig... I wouldn't say fiddling with his bits, because that's that's oh, a little bit too forward. Ouch. ouch. <laughs> the rustling is me looking at the pieces. The screen-printed trains, the screen-printing on them is superb. I was worried how they were going to do that on cylindrical things, and at that scale, looks really good. And the colours match the board nicely, and I'm, like I say, super impressed by that. The thing I was more worried about was Jordan told me that the pyramids for the station markers were going to be in resin. And I was worried how he was going to colour match the nude... Neutral wood. Quite yeah. nude. It's a bit racy since you talked about me fiddling with my bits. I was worried about how he was going to match the nude wood to the resin. And what he appears to have done is impregnated it with dye. And it looks really cool. It matches. Yeah. It does. If I didn't know it was resin, I'd think it was some kind of posh wood. So credit to him. All the other bits, they're painted the same way. The wood is at which stage. You just It feels heavier. The pieces, despite their small scale, are really nice. Even, dare I say, the Please. stock market arrows, which are tiny. And I guess it's an artificial frame. Jordan has applied for himself. It's a philosophical frame that he wants his games to be portable, not create carbon waste in transit. So everything, to a certain extent, has to serve that mission. It's a small box. If anyone's got import-export, his previous game is a similar size, but maybe even exactly the same size. There's a lot crammed into it. Yeah, it's good. And, and certainly I enjoyed the playthroughs we had on the prototype, and so I'm very keen to get another couple in, and we'll, we'll be talking about it on an episode near you soon. I well, think. we're committed to make that our next non-18XXX episode, right? If someone sends a review copy, if there's space we, in the queue, we, it goes in. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we'll get that done soon, I think. News-wise, have we got anything? I'm afraid there is no choo-choo news, Dave. Sad face. That is very sad. I know I can't use that joke much more than there, so we shall carry swiftly on.
So, into today's game. I'm going to take the lead, I think, on this one a little bit. Uh, let me talk about it first. But uh, we're going to cover Snowdonia, which was published in 2012 by Surprise Stare Games and designed by Tony Boydell. I'll be upfront and honest in this. It is not a train game, essentially. You know, we've talked, I think, in our State of the Nation episode about what constitutes a train game. This is really pushing those boundaries to some extent. It is a worker placement game. It uses trains as part of its setting. The theme is building a railway. So it all kind of skirts around the edge of what we're about, really. But uh, I pushed for this one to be included a little bit. I don't mind including things that are outside the scope sometimes, as long as we pre-warn our listeners. Absolutely. That, you know, if you are a died-in-the-wall 18xx gamer, and you're not an omni-gamer, and you just want to play 18xx, or things with an economy bent, then we just tell them the episode's not necessarily going to be in that group, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll upfront and honest with you guys as we go forward through this. So Snowdonia, as I say, it's a worker placement game. It has a runtime of between 45 to 90 minutes, depending on player count. Plays between one to five players out of the box. Some of the scenarios that come with it maybe limit the player count down to four players and some interesting variants. And again, we're going to talk about those a little bit further through the episode. Dave, it runs in under 90 minutes. That's not even a game. Okay, I'm joking. Sorry, I'm being facetious. Sorry, David. (laughs) So I know Tony. One of Tony's design goals was to make it quite short. Start the game has a clock within it that determines how long it will run, and that's an interesting factor. That again, we'll we'll talk a little bit more on analysis. I would actually say, Dave, I'd go so far as to interject and say it's one of the most interesting aspects of this design. Yeah, I'll go into it when we get there, but I think it is a very strong element. So I think, you know, first, I'm just going to kind of touch on the the sort of worker placement elements. It's fairly standard fare. There's a number of different spaces you can put workers on, getting resources, digging rubble to free up for the railway, converting things into better resources, laying the track of the said railway, building the train stations and gaining contract cards and, and moving a surveyor. We'll talk through some of those activities in a minute. I think the key thing to start here with, Dave, is that it's the family of worker placement where... There's a phase where you place all your workers, but yep. get nothing as you put your worker down. And then, and then you resolve each of the spots as you go forwards through it. Absolutely. It's my preferred family of worker placement games, right? I appreciate modern designs tend to shy away from it. Kalos, I think, was one of the earlier ones that use this form of plan, then do. Yeah, and I think this is not one that gives you that sort of instant gratification. I put my worker out, I'm getting stuff. Here <laughs> it's it's a little bit more strategic. And again, you've got within each of those groups of activities that, that I talked about, you've got more than one space. So potentially you're determining where you receive that action in, in, in a turn order, which actually is, again, an interesting challenge in the game. You know, <laughs> Do you want to be the first player to take the goods because you get the pick of the best goods? Are you going to be the last player to take the good? Because actually that gives you the start player for the next round. Yeah, sequencing is a key part of this game. And I'm going to say now, this lends itself to another one of Tony Boydell's design tropes I quite like. His use of playing cards to economically, say economically, cheaply, for want of a better term, provide scaling of the design, right? He hasn't given you five different boards for the different player counts. He's given you a pack of cards and you dress over the top of the worker placement spaces the section for let's say it's a, on the board it's printed three players then there'll be a four player card in the pack a five player card, card in the pack. and yeah. you overlay that over the spots to give you the mm. variability yeah and, and one of the other things i like as well with this one is you've got that central board that sits on it with your action spots and you know some of the other sort of state of the game indicators and outside the edge of the board you you lay a, a series of cards that represent the tracks and the stations running up the snowdonian mountain railway or or wherever you are in whichever specific scenario you're running so it's always again, wales it's always wales dave 
Always Wales. Quite possibly, yes. And and see, one of the things that, that, that you know you've got is that that can change. So so some of the expansions really change the number of track and stations between cards. So it, it does bring a lot into it. Fairly standard worker placement thing, you know. I think in that same bracket as you know Uwe Rosenberg's Agricola and that. I know that was a big influence on Tony on the design. And yeah, it, I think it stands up very well in that space. I'll give my full thoughts on it when we get to our kind of final piece. Looking into some of the other things that the game does and some of the interesting tropes in it. So it has, um, so the system of weather influences how much you can dig. As it is Wales, it can be foggy and miserable and therefore you can't dig any train track at all. It can be raining, which you do a little bit, or it can be sunny, which is very occasionally seen in Wales, I believe. <laughs> I am allowed to say that, having Welsh heritage. Sure. And uh, obviously when it's sunny, you know, everyone is, is doing lots of things at that point, really. So that's quite interesting, the way that comes out and manages. I guess as having Welsh heritage, you're obliged to say it as part of the propaganda machine to lie that sun ever hits Wales. Yes, absolutely. Mm. I'm being paid to make that statement, I think. Of course. The cards that are used to deliver that mechanism of weather on the other side of them are what are called contract cards. And they do two things for you. They give you some endgame scoring, usually for collecting some bits, you know, be either resources or, or having tokens in various places and states. And, and again, they're a really key part of forming your endgame scoring in the game. And alternatively, they give you a one-off benefit that you can use in the game. And that's usually quite powerful, quite distorting against some of the core actions. So for example, I think there's one that allows you to take more resources or take resources even though you're not in the number one player spot and things like that i'm going to just cycle back to both those elements i'll talk to the weather if i may dave specifically i quite like it because it makes your workers or certain activities of varying efficiency as the game goes so for me it feels like a relation a a distant cousin if you will of the worker placement games where your different workers have different levels of efficiency this is more globally digging is more efficient or less efficient this round or not allowed at all except by the robot which will come to beep bop beep bop I think it's clever, and I think it doesn't apply a grotesque rules overhead to get an interesting quality of decision available to the players. Yeah, it's very obvious. It's very visually marked, as you say, and it kind of makes an interesting strategy. You know, you're best off digging when the sun is shining because that gives you the most return. But actually, in other instances, it may be better for you to dig, again, calculating what you're going to get out of doing that is a key part of this game. So the weather is, you know, certainly a really key part of it. And cycling to forwards to contracts... So far, so Tony. I like contracts. I like the personal scoring objectives. I think the clever thing here, or just clever, the thing I value here is that they're pulled from an open display. And once you pick the contract, because it was known information when you drew it, it remains known. So you can counterplay other people's scoring objectives. It's not like it's latter design, Guilds of London. And to be fair, in Guilds of London, it wouldn't work if they were open. But in Guilds sure. of London, when you pull a, a scoring objective... A mayoral card, yeah. Yeah. You draw it, it's hidden, it's only known to you, and people have to infer what your scoring objectives are from behaviour. I like in this one where you've already got the little bluffy bit of planning and sequencing. It's already kind of cognitively challenging enough that the mission cards are open. And again, they can influence your plays quite greatly. I know we, we had a play a couple of weeks ago where I took the contract card that gives you scoring for coal. So I, I basically spent the whole game pulling the coal cubes out. Coal is quite an important resource. It allows you to get an extra worker later on in the game once you've got a train. So basically I spent the whole game destroying other people's turns. I know it frustrated you and I think Tom, who was playing with us greatly, at that point didn't it it changed the economics of the game significantly but let's talk about the extra worker thing because I think that's another clever touch right I appreciate it's not where we are in terms of our notes (laughs) we have notes heavens I think the thing that's worth mentioning is in most worker placement games I've played it's a given that as soon as you can buy an extra worker you buy an extra worker because increasing your work rate gives you advantage with this 
you actually have to fuel the extra worker. You get two that are yours always, indentured for want of a better term, and then you get one extra that you have to feed Cole because he's got strange tastes. I think it's the thunder train to get him to work or whatever. You, you lure him out of the pub with coal, which is clearly a very Welsh thing, I'm guessing. The point I'm making is, what's interesting from a game point of view, is that you have to work for that extra worker throughout the entire game, principally. You've got to have a supply line as a, for that. As opposed to, I bought it, I'm done, now I'm, now I'm cooking now the I've gas. Now I've constantly got three coal workers. Or coal. And that probably brings us nicely into the trains. Trains, as I say, are not used in this game in the same way. They're much more designed to infer a benefit to the player. So at a certain point of the game, you can spend some resources to get a train. Mm. Uh, The train may give you some kind of benefit, be it scoring, be it better efficiency on working, and all sorts of other things. And this is an element of Tony's that, that really has part of what I'd guess I'd call the game a bit of a system. The trains are things that he's produced constantly throughout the life of it. His blog is full of print and play ones i know they're pulling together all the trains that have been produced to date and some new ones as part of the recently run kickstarter for the new Mm. version of the game i'll touch on that kickstarter at the end of the episode i think i mean they're they're an interesting way of introducing player asymmetry right worker placement games with player asymmetry i'm gonna go out on a limb here say they're fundamentally more interesting as long as the asymmetry isn't doesn't throw the design off the cliff edge and the nice thing these trains are the the asymmetry isn't at the start it just randomly assigns some asymmetry you have to work towards it and race towards getting the train it yeah. gives you the abilities, be they actual things you can grind out during the game or end game scoring that you want. The other asymmetry there is a nice balancing thing by Tony, I think. If you have a train as a wild power or super scoring, then the cost of extra workers for you is typically increased. Higher, oh, yeah. so sometimes it's two coal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, two coal instead of one coal. So or you're paying more to get the train. That you're paying mm. two steel bars instead of one to buy it. So some nice balancing on there. Which I think is, you know, like I say, credit to Tony, I think that's a nice feature. Trains do need some management in the game. You know, there's a certain point in the game that allows you to buy them. And then further on down the line, uh, as the game progresses in its game state, and we'll explain that thing in a little bit more detail shortly. But as it progresses, you have to do train maintenance, which makes sense. You know, otherwise your trains will rust. This is an 18x podcast, I guess. But ultimately, you you have to give your trains a a steel bar at some point as part of this. Sorry, was that that my worst pun to date? Oh, I'm just grumbling, Jeepers Creepers, as if any of the 18 XX players are listening right now, Probably, Dave. we have lost them at this point. <laughs> no, um, can I just say, Dave, I have to say now, we have to mention it exists. I think it's all that's almost procedural. I almost don't care for it. Well, you might as well just add a steel bar to the cost of all the trains at that point. One of the first playthroughs we had where somebody bought a train and then because of the way the game advanced the state very quickly, they actually lost it on the same turn because they weren't able to maintain it. There's let's a risk-reward thing there. Let's be fair, that's a sample of one. That was Lindsay. It was her first game. And I'm almost certain that's the case, Dave. No, it wasn't Lindsay. But uh, anyway, oh, it was... Should I, should I remain unnamed yeah, for, for their uh, eternal shame? Yeah, it was uh, Lindsay. It wasn't Lindsay. It's an interesting thing. As you said, it's, it's not a challenge that other players can force upon you, but you need to be aware of that and the risk. I think it's just a nice touch. It isn't like, here's this wildly distorting thing, as you say, that I can get, albeit at a premium cost. It's, I've got it, and now if I want to keep it, then actually I need to uh, give it something to keep it running. Yeah, I guess, okay, I would say, I get your point. I wish, weirdly, you had to do it more if you're going to have the feature yeah. have it trigger more than once right you only have to feed your train one steel bar for the entire game maybe if it was a thing you had to do every so often every three rounds or, or something like yeah sure. it becomes more of an overhead which then lessens the impact of some of those those quite challenging ones so to the point of train maintenance how does the game kind of the game clockwork that is a really key factor in this so there's a track that runs on the board and there's some cubes that are seeded in the bag you draw out of every round and when you draw one of the white cubes out of the bag a game event 
event happens and, and that can be stuff like the game will build the next piece of available track the game will dig away space for track at the current digging rate the game will build a station in its entirety stations are again another way that players get their scoring by claiming spots in the station in exchange for resources and that game clock i think is again one of those really really clever things it drives the end of the game ultimately when the last bit of rail has been built the game will end on that round I think it's beyond really clever. I think it's actually one of the most inspired parts of the design. I hate robots, Dave. Absolutely hate robots. If I was set in a sci-fi universe, it would be Blade Runner and I would be one of the guys retiring the robots. Okay, I know they're not called robots for the record. The point I'm making is I come at this from an angle where I'm naturally predisposed against automata. Here's the thing. I like that robot in this game naturally disarms the normal worker placement strategy of horde, 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 sprint. If you hoard in this game to try and achieve something, or more to the point, if all the players collaborate to hoard, then the robot will take those scoring opportunities away from you. And that's why I don't think this is a robot in the sense, you know, you see in some other games this kind of automated player who takes predefined actions as such to, in effect, be a third player around the table, even though they're not there. This is the game advancing its state towards the end. And if you sat there and did nothing in the game, which I know isn't possible, but you know what I mean, ultimately the game would resolve itself. It's a little bit like that desire I've got with all the coin games, where they come with flowchart robot players for each faction. I kind of want to let them play themselves at some point. Mm. Um, I think that's probably three hours of my time that I may not get back, but it'd be quite a fun thing to do in some weird way in my head. I'll try to find a digital version to do it for you, Dave. Write a program instead, Dave. I'm sure you can find somebody in in your uh, company to write an interesting coin program. I agree with you. It's more of a clock than it is a robot, but the nice thing with it is it's not overly burdensome. No. And you can see it coming, there's enough visual information, you know how many cubes are in and out of the bag, it's not a large amount of information to track. And again, I'd wrap it up as a general feeling that this is a medium weight Euro game, not a heavy, dense, complex thing by any imagination, but it's supremely well done at that level. You know, it's tight, efficient, there's nothing that feels particularly wasted in it, and it absolutely delivers on the nail, in my view, as part and parcel of it. The only other thing I think we kind of want to just touch on briefly are well, expansions. So in the base game, you've got the standard Mount Snowden scenario, and then you also get Blenau Festiniog. Again, I will apologise to my Welsh family for that poor pronunciation at this point. No, Dave, Dave, I'd, let me try, let me try. Blenau Festin... Oh, I can't say it how you said it. Yeah, wow. exactly. Oh, I'm, I'm, maybe I've got a bit of Welsh in me. Yeah. <laughs> undiscovered heritage there and that you know these scenarios are super interesting that changed the game a lot it's a four player one Uh, that one has you start in either ends of the board there your surveyor actually restricts what you can do so you know it kind of having learned the basics of the game this then kind of not rips up some of the rules but certainly says here's how to do things in a totally different way hold up assumed knowledge alert assumed knowledge alert so in the base game the mount snowden scenario your surveyor walks along the stations and functionally, you punt a dead action to move your surveyor along the, the train stations. And the further along he gets, the better he scores at the end of the game. The filter on you building stations is the footings of the rails being built to the station concern. So until the, the footings of the railway has been built to a given station, you can't score building station features there. What Dave's alluding to with the Blenau Fustiniog expansion, ding, 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 got it right, is that when you move your surveyor he enables you to build the stations. So you're going to be moving the surveyor along the track. Depending on which side you are. Yeah, of course. And you can start from either side. So weirdly, you've got two pairs of players heading towards each other in the middle where the plum scoring opportunities are. But they can only build as far as their surveyor has travelled, which gives him... I actually prefer that variant in many ways. Or It's more to the point, I prefer the integration of the surveyor into that variant. Yeah. 
know, what, the other one is just a point scoring mechanism mm. and, and he becomes the good action in a bad turn. Yeah, sure. When it's foggy, you just sprint your surveyor along because he's got a waterproof jacket. With this, instead of having to worry about the footings, you're moving your surveyor as part of the longer tactical come strategic play. And as I say, Blenau is the first one that came in the base game. There have been a ton of expansions since then. Tony and some fellow designers have been very, very good at keeping Snowdonia evergreen as a game. You know, it's got the Jungfrau Barn and, and Mount Washington. One. I, I played Jungfrau a couple of times. That has an interesting element whereby you can use dynamite uh, and that blows all the rubble up, which stops you from being able to connect it, but it accelerates mm. the game even more. Okay, so um, that puts light on my earlier point. It's set in Wales, except when it isn't set except, in Wales. Yes, the expansions yeah. do move away from Wales. You've got the Necropolis Railway, which is a famed line I think from Victorian times in in London where they would take your dead out of Waterloo down to Brookwood and your surveyor has passed away in that one and again you've got to take his coffin down to Brookwood Cemetery on that line it's that recognition of the fact that he is just like a dead piece in the base game Dave ooh controversial controversial yeah Yeah. (laughs) I'll let you deal with the fallout of that statement and there's plenty of these other things and so I alluded to earlier on there's a third edition recently that has been uh, kickstarted it's going to be published by NSKN Games I think and that that is a deluxe version, basically. They have added absolutely everything that has been made to date for the game. Oh, bar a few bits, Dave. There's a few absolutely limited edition bits. No, all of that got added before the end of the Kickstarter. Really, including like the Zimbabwe, the lo- Zimbabwe Lions. And, and the, the Puffing Billy asthma one as well. All of that got added by oh, the that's, end. That's really good of them. Yeah, they cleared all of the content for, for some of those exclusive ones. So I th- as far as I'm aware... I'm pretty sure Tony will be the first person to correct us if we are wrong. Absolutely everything that has been produced to date for Snowdonia is going in that deluxe edition and a ton of new stuff. There's another three or four scenarios. There's a whole host of new trains, all deluxe components, new board art. You name it, it's in there to some extent. Where the expenses sounded like an infomercial, is it still available in a pledge manager or basically is your goose cooked and you've got to get it at retail so I believe late pledges are potentially going to be open this is in production now it's going to take a long time to produce it was a very successful campaign and I think you know they're they're targeting a mid 2019 release I think there is potentially some late pledges that are going to open up if not I'm pretty sure there's some, some retailers who will have copies when it gets into circulation I know our local retailers committed to some I mean by the by but I can't imagine he's alone so, no, no, I'm I'm pretty sure that, that again it will be produced and available. And when people see it, if this game is your cup of tea, I think you know it's something that's absolutely. Are, are they giving the art any treatment? I appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the game had had some wonderful art originally. I think uh, I think it might have been Clement Frowns that was doing it, but they've also had a bit of a makeover on the game and and changed some of the board art and the box art. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think they're distilling that lovely art that's on there. It is quite evocative of Wales with with green hills and and grayness on it somewhere i think i think it could do with a little bit of a polish you can see the era it was produced to a certain extent it's not bad by any objective measure but i can see now you know it's 2018 if they've got an opportunity to tie you up to modernize the art a tiny bit yeah refresh good word then why not talking to art and iconography my only complaint about this game is on the mission card i know this is very specific down a rabbit hole don't know if they're dealing with this or not i guess we'll find out tony you can tell me it's fine the mission cards have spade. So having done a certain amount of spades, for want of a better term. Which is the symbol for digging rubble, isn't Sure. It? So you have to have done a certain amount of digging. But to prove that you have done the digging at the end of the game, you have to have a certain amount of brown rubble cubes, the output of digging, and your tableau available to assign to the cards. I almost just wish the mission cards had little brown cubes on there. Yeah, because basically all they're using is the action symbol rather than, as you say, the thing that needs to be evaluated against. So, sure. Yeah, it's a minor gripe, I would argue. But I understand yeah. where you 
you're coming from. I guess it was the old first game thing, right? It was the thing at first game that made no sense. Once you've internalised it and you know it, it's fine. It was just weird because every other card had the thing you had to have on it. Yeah. As opposed to the activity you did to get it. Yes, yes. So I guess at that point, should we just trying to dive into thoughts? I've been pretty open through most of it, so maybe I'm going to let you go first at this point. Sure. Well, I played this when Dave strongly encouraged me to do so, partly because he wanted to cover it for this episode, partly because it was long overdue. It was a worker placement game that on a big Facebook chat group in the UK gets a heck of a lot of love. Now, I don't know if that's because Tony Boydell frequents that chat group and sends everybody a fiver once a year, or if, at, at this point... Or, if, if he does, I'm missing mine, I think. I think you're tenor a year if you do podcasts for it, Dave. I'm about to be disqualified from my tenor a year. But it was good to play it, and like I said, it was on, on my to-do list. I was surprised how much I liked it. Because every time I've put it off, it's always been under the premise of, come on, man, I've got so many worker placement games. How can this displace Argent? How can this displace Tracurion? How can this displace a host of other heavy worker placement games? And you know what? It doesn't. It fits instead. It fits into this medium weight category in terms of the rule complexity and rule, you know, sheer volume of rules. But it still has a decent quality of decision. So I feel like this is more accessible. I can certainly crack this out in a normal game evening. And um, if I had a copy, and expect to play it and something else easily. Whereas those other games, they're more the ones I alluded to, like Argent, the Consortium. I might arguably prefer those, Dave, but it's because they're longer running experiences that last three and a half hours, and as such, they're harder to get to the table. I'm lucky if I can play Trickerion four times a year. I suspect I could probably play this one once a month with ease. And, and there's enough content there to keep it fresh if you're doing that. Sure, and agreed. I agree. It definitely, if I was playing it that often, I'd want some of the expansions. Luckily, our exposure of the expansion we've, we've played so far, they have provided a meaningfully different experience. Sometimes when you get these expansions and they're just a minor tweak and the thing still plays the same, it adds a load of worker placement spots off the side that oh, they do loosely the same things. This isn't that. And I guess the standard question we always try and ask at this point in an episode is, is this a game for new players? What, what would your thoughts be on that? Yeah, I don't think there's anything to stop this being someone's first worker placement game, really. I think by the time you're playing Euro games, this is going to be as absorbable to you as anything else, if not more so. There's nothing in here to confuse and confound. Despite that, there's still things in here to charm and make you think. Yeah, and I guess I'll just follow that up with my kind of wrap-up. And I think I've worn my heart on my sleeve through the course of this episode. You know, I'm a big Snowdonia fan. You know, a game that I've really enjoyed seeing come to life and play many, many, many times over the years. And, and I know it, it's a real labour of love for Tony. I'm kind of fortunate to count him amongst one of my friends. And, you know, he is really passionate about this. He's has a love for railway history and things like that. And a lot of this stuff comes through in his blog. And he's always talking about that. And as I said earlier, putting up print and play trains and content. So he's really driven this as a passionate project for many years. Well, on the flip side, I don't really know Tony from Adam. I've spoken to him on Facebook a few times, maybe seen him at a convention once or twice in passing. So I'm more comfortable saying this bit. Thank you for the disclosure, Dave, about your relationship with Tony. That's always worth sharing. I would say that this is not one that I would promote to someone who's looking for an economy game or a share game or anything like that. This is eminently outside of that wheelhouse. It's not something I would gravitate to with that hat on under any circumstances. This is a much lighter experience. Sometimes you've had a rubbish week or a rubbish day and all the brain space you have is for something that takes something familiar with a little twist. And I don't, I don't think there's, and, and there's I, no crime in making something like that. And I, and I think that this does that exceptionally well. It, it sits up there, I think, in, you know, in one of the best worker placement games of mm. that weight category, for uh, Dave, in my opinion. For Dave, for Dave, I'm still, I'm still ranking it. I'm not, I've got lots of worker placement games. 
and I'm still ranking it. I won't lie. And I think, you know, just looking further aligned, so as we said earlier, there's that deluxe edition coming down the line. Uh, oh, there's my first train pun of the episode, I think. I got one in again. They're there somehow every episode. I know there's a variant, Alibari, which is coming in 2019, which is set in India to do with tea leaves and transporting tea. So that's going to be an interesting one. Is it a variant? Is that a bit underselling it a bit? I thought it was a whole new... It's a whole new thing. There's some extra stuff in it. I don't know. Uh, maybe, Tony, we should try and organise a game, get in touch with us, and we can we can help do a preview for you, perhaps. I could talk about it more authoritatively if I knew if it was a variant or a game. That'd be good, wouldn't um, it? And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Tony is, Tony's always got his mind switched on to that, so I'm pretty sure there's extra content coming beyond that deluxe edition i think hmm. there's a two-player card game in the works as well foothills when you say in the works you mean in development right because if it's already in the works it's, then it's been in deep gone trouble. The, yeah, he, he missed that getting published but for those of you not in the uk the works is a discount retailer which usually offers some pretty good bargain basement priced games and, and you can get good games in there for that but, yeah, um, but, but, but they're, they're normally games that have been massively overprinted. Uh, yeah but um <laughs> But yes, no, uh, I don't believe that is in the works as a retailer. I believe that is in Tony's uh, Tony's mind. So I think at that point, we'll kind of close out. I guess we do the usual stuff about talking about where you can find us. So we're on Twitter at... The Train Rush. We're also on Instagram at... The underscore train underscore rush. We're also on Facebook. Find us on Facebook. You can find us, just, just search us on Facebook. It's easy peasy. Uh, also, finally, you can find all that information on our website, if you so wish, which is thetrainrush.com, including our guild number as of today. I think at that point we'll wrap up. Normal service will be resumed with a slightly more train economic focused game, I would imagine, in our next episode. But thank you for listening today, for those of you that stayed with us today. Yeah, thank you very much. It was fun to record and I hope you have as much fun listening to it. Cheerio.